Father God, we thank you that once again we can enjoy our freedom to come here and worship you, to meet with each other, and to hear you speak to us. And may the words that I speak be glorifying to you, O God. And may we leave here not only knowing that we have met with each other, but that we have met with you, the living and true God. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, last week, from Leviticus 9 and 10, we saw an amazing scene following on from Moses' and Aaron's meeting with God and an act of obedience by Aaron. A scene of adoring worship of God by the ancient people of Israel. Then we saw together a holy God, judging Nadab and Abihu because of their deliberate act of disobedience, where they entered God's presence unworthily and with seeming contempt, if not familiarity, because contempt breeds familiarity, doesn't it? And we went on to see that for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, the Bible is very clear. We are all called to lovingly and obediently serve God and other people in some capacity within the church. The church which is to be God's orchestra of joy to a world that needs the true joy only God can provide through Jesus Christ alone. And today we dip into Leviticus 16 which I think is the centre and pinnacle of this magnificent book of joy, which is what I call Leviticus. And Leviticus 16 describes that one day of the year, the day of atonement which was to occur on the tenth day of the seventh month. It would be the 18th of September for us this year, if we were to go through with it. And we know that God had chosen Israel to be his people and that they were to be his shining beacon of light and hope to the world, to the other nations around them. And as part of the covenant made with Moses, God said that he would be their God and they would be his people. What a contrast to the nations around them they were. The nations that worshipped multiple gods, Gods made of material of wood or stone and often thirsty for sacrifice, but not animals, but human sacrifice. Contrast those gods with the God of Israel who had made himself known personally, present with his people in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. So let's look briefly at what went on on this day of atonement or as the Jews today call it, Yom Kippur. Most of the activity takes place in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a, uh, the tent of meeting, which was part canvas, part wooden marquee, divided across the middle by a curtain. And the curtain was that thick, the width of your hand. There was the public side, and then there was the other side, beyond the curtain, known as the, the Holy of Holies, where only the chief priest could enter and that only once a year. And inside the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, there was the Ark of the Covenant, 
nothing to do with Indiana Jones, a small chest or box which represented God's presence with his people. And then there was the mercy seat, or the atonement cover, as it's also called. This was the removable top of the ark where the blood was sprinkled by the high priest. Then there was the golden censer. Aaron, the high priest, used this to make the cloud of smoky incense as he entered the Holy of Holies. Why did he do that? That was to form a wall of protection for Aaron, hiding God's presence from Aaron. Because to look directly upon God would have caused Aaron's death, just as it did for Nadab and Abihu earlier. And the smoke and incense ensured that God's holiness was bearable to sinful man, that God's mystery remained and Aaron was preserved. So what is this Day of Atonement all about? And Leviticus 16 gives a summary, but you can read the details in the rest of the chapter. To atone means to clean, to make amends and to substitute. And it starts off by referring back to the incident we looked at last week with uh, Abihu and Nadab. And through their death, the Lord states the fundamental principles for priests Only they could mediate for the nation before him and they had to be spiritually and ceremonially clean. The offerings, what were the offerings? There were five offerings on the Day of Atonement in order to cleanse and re-consecrate the tabernacle. All included the death of an animal and therefore involved blood. More about blood soon. There were two blood atonements for sin offerings for the priests and people. There was a scapegoat sin offering for everybody. And there were two burnt offerings for priests and people. And there was blood. Why blood? Leviticus 17.11 tells us this. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. How is the life in the blood? You may well ask. And today most of us are probably a bit squeamish when it comes to blood, aren't we? We're nice, civil, 21st century people. So I asked some people about blood and this is what they told me. Here's what blood consists of, the job that it does and why it is life. The liquid part is called plasma which consists of water, salts, and protein. Over half of blood is plasma. The solid part of blood contains red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. Red blood cells deliver oxygen to organs, cells, and tissues. They also provide essential nutrients such as amino acids, fatty acids, and glucose, all the while removing waste materials such as carbon dioxide, urea and lactic acid. The white blood cells meanwhile protect the body from infection and foreign bodies. Life is in the blood. The white blood cells meanwhile protect the body from infection, as I said. As for the platelets, they are there to plug a wound while the clotting cascade gets to work to form a more permanent clot. 
Wonderful, isn't it? Any platelet missing and the clot, the clotting fails. And you know why blood is red? Because of the iron within the blood. So basically we're rust. <laughs> That's why there's life in the blood. But why was blood used to create or atone? Why not water? Why did God need blood as some form of, was it some form of bloodlust on the side of God? Or was it the quench's thirst for blood? No, not at all. God didn't need blood, but blood was used to show the cost of sin. Sin has a cost. The cost was blood because life is in the blood, as we read earlier from Leviticus 17. The substitution of a dead animal reflected a temporary covering or veneer, which is why it needed to be done over and over again. It's like gold plate is no substitute for 24 karat gold, is it? All these sacrifices, cleansings and ceremonies to be done, not for the sake of God, but as pictures for his people to make them understand how serious sin and disobedience was. And how difficult it was to provide a remedy for it. Remember, Israel was to be a, a shining light for God to the other nations. More about that, how they were to go about that next week. Aaron. So that's blood. What about Aaron? During his normal daily duties, he represented God before the people. And he was dressed as a king. And to signal that he would wear grand clothes which signified the high honour in which he was to be held and esteemed. Therefore Aaron was ordinarily dressed in very special clothes to signify that high honour, esteem and duty as God's representative to the people of Israel. However, on this one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron represented the people before God. And before the Lord Almighty, Aaron is stripped of honour and is dressed as a simple servant. Verse 4 shows us he's to be wearing a simple linen tunic covering simple linen undergarments with a linen sash around him and a linen turban on his head. And he had to bathe himself, wash himself beforehand. Why? So that in order to approach God as a servant. So to a certain extent, Aaron was a servant king. Look at verse 3, a direct command. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. You can be sure that Aaron would enter carefully, respectfully and reverently. Before he could go into that most holy place, he had to create an obscuring cloud of incense in the, the holy of holies to veil the glory of God so he could enter and live. No doubt the memory of his sons provided an extra incentive to follow God's rules meticulously. Then there's the remarkable story of the scapegoat. There were two goats to be offered, one goat was sacrificed as a substitutionary sin offering for the people and its blood taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. 
Aaron laid his hands on the second goat's head, the one kept alive, and symbolically cast the burden of all the sins of the nation onto the goat. It was then driven out into the wilderness, far away from the camp, and was never to return. In later years, they would take the goat to a cliff and push the goat off the cliff to make sure that it would never come back. And in this remarkable jewel picture, the people of Israel were shown that their sins were atoned for and also removed far out of sight into the wilderness. And the people, what were the people to do? Were they supposed to look around looking bored, falling asleep? No. They were not to be passive, but rather to actively observe as best they can a special and very complete Sabbath rest. They were to remember this day as a permanent addition to the annual calendar by denying themselves for the day or humbling themselves, as another translation puts it. This involved not doing things such as working and feasting. They were to fast. They were also to trust that Aaron was being fully obedient to the regulations as given by God. Because if Aaron didn't follow the rules then their sins wouldn't be forgiven, would they? They were to ponder upon the awesomeness of the God that lived among them and to reflect upon the cost of their sin and disobedience. On this Day of Atonement, the one day of the year, atonement took place between God and his people. No wonder there were great scenes of celebration afterwards. God would continue to lend, to live with his people, a cause for celebration. And atonement means, as I said, both a sacrifice and a cleansing. God's holy dwelling place and all things associated with cleanse. The sins and disobedience of the nation of Israel over the previous year had left impurities, as stipulated in verse 16. The cleansing blood was to symbolise the great cost of sin and disobedience. But now, now on this one day of the year, all that had been cleansed, all that had been forgotten, all that had been forgiven, all sins, both for the nation of Israel as a whole and for all individuals, all wiped clean and forgotten, as far as the east and the west it's distributed. Hallelujah! You can hear them. Perhaps that's just the voices in my head. What does all that mean for us today, some three and a half thousand years later? If that's atonement, then a reasonable question to ask is, why is there a need for atonement? So let's go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And we see in the creation story that Almighty God created the universe and all that is in it, including our planet Earth. And upon this earth, God has created countless species of animals, fish, insects, birds, and everything in between. There are over 400,000 different species of plants. Wow. All formed with the utterance by God. And even more wondrous, though, is that God created humanity in his own likeness and image. You and I. No two humans in all of history are completely the same, despite outward appearances. 
Every day, each of us produces 200 billion new red blood cells. And our blood travels 12,000 miles within our body. So if you're tired, now you know why. (laughs) The total length of all the nerves in your body is 47 miles. You're bigger than you think. Even bigger, there is enough DNA in our bodies alone that if it was decompressed, it would wrap around the diameter of our solar system twice. Does that make you want to go, wow? (laughs) You are bigger than you think. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And did you feel that last incoming brain impulse you had? It was travelling at a speed of 250 miles an hour. The police wouldn't be able to catch you. Incredible. That's you and I. So there we are. In the beginning, God and humanity were in relationship. There was an innate intimacy between God and man and woman. We know the story, don't we? Shortly after their creation, humanity disobeyed God's clear command. Humanity said, well, you know what, God? I love you, but I think my way is best. So I'm going to go do that, okay? See you later. And humanity went ahead with their own way and in an act of disobedience, sinned against Almighty God. You can read about it in Genesis 3. So therefore the relationship was broken, and afterwards there was nothing humanity could do about it in order to restore that innate relationship between God and humanity. And that's the story of this broken world, isn't it? A world which is in a mess. Isn't it? Is there anybody out there? Yeah? Even a cursory look around tells us that. And God could have said, well, I'll just leave it to it. I've made it, just leave my name. See you later. But he didn't do that, did he? Because he's a God of love. And if God was not love, then he would not be God. And God himself needed to intervene so that humanity could choose to return to being in an active, dynamic and intimate relationship with God. And the Old Testament, but part of the Bible that we're looking at, traces that journey. And that's where we are with the story before us with Moses, Aaron, and the people of ancient Israel. And I'm sure you know that one part of, one uh, principle of reading the Bible is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So bearing that in mind, Hebrews 9 and 10 are the best commentary on Leviticus 16. In there, we see that Jesus Christ is our scapegoat and has taken the immense burden of our sins on himself. We see that it's no coincidence, therefore, that Jesus died outside the city, as the writer points out in Hebrews 13, verse 12, because Jesus is a scapegoat. Aaron was a type of servant king, as we saw, but Jesus was the ultimate servant king. Aaron, as chief priest, offered sacrifices for the cleansing of sin, including his own disobediences and sins. But Jesus Christ himself was both the sacrifice and the chief priest. Jesus Christ, who was sinless and had led a perfect life of obedience to God, became sin. Why would Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human, become sin? 
we saw that the Day of Atonement was held once a year. Atonement as achieved by Jesus Christ was the unique, the one and only, unrepeatable day of Calvary which we celebrate at Easter. It's what we remember when taking the Holy Communion. And I think we're doing next week, aren't we? I think I've read somewhere. That's why the bread and wine only symbolise Jesus' body and blood. If it was more than symbolic as some streams of Christianity claim, then it would be like a repeat of his death each time, wouldn't it? Certainly untenable. There is only one day of Calvary, and on that historic day, Jesus' death was the once and for all atoning and substitutionary sacrifice which make amends to God for the sins of the world. Jesus alone gives life and offers life to the full, a life born from grace and not from law. Jesus ushered in the new covenant, which we looked at last week. And at the time of Jesus, the temple was the, the tabernacle successor in Jerusalem. You can see what remains of it if you visit Jerusalem now, because it was basically torn apart in the year 70 AD, or AD 70. They said in the temple, there was a curtain that was the thickness of your hand. That was to prevent anyone entering that place unauthorised. And when Jesus died on his cross, that curtain in the Holy of Holies to the temple was torn from top to bottom. And this was to symbolise that access to God was now open to all who would enter by faith. And all because of Jesus of Nazareth. As we've hopefully seen from Leviticus 16, sins were dealt with by blood sacrifices of atonement as coverings for sin, for without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. And sin is a word that has come down in the world. Sin is seen by some people as well. It's something to do with Boscombe, isn't it? I've had people say it to me. They won't visit Boscombe. Well, we don't really want you here if you like that. Young me and I find Boscombe one of the most pleasant places we've been to. And sin is any disobedience against God in thought, in word, in attitude, in action, or even inaction. And a blood sacrifice was God's way of dealing with sin to show the cost of sin. However, the solution, as we have hopefully seen, lies not in the continual sacrifices of the Old Testament. Because Hebrews 10 verse 4 reminds us that the blood of animals cannot take away sin, but was only ever a veneer or a plating or a covering. That was why it was had to be done again and again each year. And it's only through Jesus' death that sin is taken away. And that was only needed once. And the annual day of atonement was looking forward to the coming of a Messiah, who as we know is the man we know as Jesus. And therefore Jesus is our permanent sacrificial substitute. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was the atonement for all sin, past, present and future. Therefore, it's his atonement which results in salvation for all people who are prepared to accept his work on their behalf. Nothing we can do, nothing we can do can earn us salvation from God's judgment of our sin. It's a free gift from God from the wellsprings of his grace, mercy and love. 
but we have to accept it and take it as a gift. Jesus, as God in person, gives humanity a focal point to respond to. God does not force people to love him, because then it would not be love. But he invites all people to be in that dynamic and intimate relationship with him. God is love, but he will not force people against their will to be in relationship with him. But his love is compelling, isn't it? It chases you down. It pursues you like the hound of heaven in Francis Thompson's great poem. Love never forces, but it always calls, it always seeks, and it is always compelling. There's a difference between com- compelling and force. And each person can choose for themselves if they want to take up this offer or not. And the free offer of forgiveness is available to all who choose to accept it. Amazing love shown by an almighty God of love. And Jesus' death was an act of redemption. In the New Testament, the word was used to refer to the buying back of a slave, the price paid to pay for the slave's freedom. And God paid the redemption price so that humans can be freed from their slavery to sin. The price was paid, and so we are redeemed people and bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died for our sin, the just for the unjust, or as the Apostle Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's how God is both just and justifier. That's why Jesus needs to be both fully God and fully human. If he was neither, or if he lacked either, he wouldn't be the full substitutionary sacrifice that was necessary to bear the consequences of sin. If he wasn't God, his death would only be of value to himself, wouldn't it? And if he wasn't human, he wouldn't be a sufficient and satisfactory substitute, would he? So he needed to be both fully human and fully God. And the scriptures tell us that for a while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us, willingly giving his life as a ransom for many, and when he died in our place on the cross, he bore the consequences of all sin, past, present and future. And this substitution was a sacrifice, or the atonement, or sin offering, required in order that Jesus could take away the sins of the world. He became sin for us, and it was his blood as a lamb without splot, splot, spot or blemish that fulfills God's requirements permanently. And sometimes, though, we may have confessed our sins and taken God's offer of forgiveness, but we have those things that sometimes try to creep into our heads saying, you didn't really do that, did you? Old hairy legs, Satan. He comes along, doesn't he? Oh, by the way, if I call you old hairy legs, it's an, in, it's an insult in Australia. <laughs> and Martin Luther once said, uh, what did he say? He says, I, I 
rebuke the devil and chase him away with an insult. So that's why I call Satan old hairy legs. But other people come to us too as well. They like to remind us of our sins against them, don't they? And then there's our own self. Our guilty conscience comes to play, as the writer of Hebrews said, didn't he? Verse 21 in Hebrews 10. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We declare to our detractors that our confessed sins are forgiven. Those sins inevitably will have consequences, but of themselves, those sins are in the wilderness as far as the east is from the west. Amazing love. We are forgiven. Forgiveness is freedom. Freedom from fear, frustration, and freedom from judgment, God's judgment. And true forgiveness is not just saying sorry. Forgiveness includes penitence and is also a desire never to do that same thing again. Redemption and sacrifice can be summed up in one word. What do you think that one word is? Love. God loves you and 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 you. And guess what? Even loves me. <laughs> Somebody has to. <laughs> and as Christian disciples, we are bought at a price and we have a new position before God. We're bought out of slavery to sin into glorious freedom where we are now slaves and servants to Jesus Christ. And we're also Jesus' personal possession. He will take care of us. But again, it's our responsibility to choose that way because God will not force you. He leaves it as a choice. So what's our response to all this to be? To love, to love God, and to love others actively. More about that next week. And because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus Christ, God accepts us as his children, and he comes to live within us. Isn't that amazing? I still find it amazing, even having been a Christian now for about 35 years. God comes to live within us, and it's all because of the atoning work of Jesus, God's Son. In his death on the cross. Amazing. Do you know this God? Isn't that a cause for a wow? I mean, I know you're English, but you can go wow. Way, hallelujah. Do you know this God? Isn't that a cause for wow? Atoning joy. Joy, the amazing, quiet, and inner confidence that we can have knowing we're his children, he's our God. What's the word? Wow. Finally, as we conclude, firstly, we looked at all that occurred on that great annual event known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, as it is in Hebrew, including those sacrifices. Then we looked at how that applied today, some three and a half thousand years because of the cross of Jesus Christ, who was our atoning sacrifice. 
We have a relationship with Almighty God because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, which we celebrate at Easter and which we remember when we take Holy Communion. Atonement means that we are at one with God. More next week about that. And all because of God and from his wellsprings of love, grace and mercy. Nothing we can do can earn it, but simply because of his act of love toward us. Jesus Christ, unique, majestic, tender, wise, strong, beautiful and lovely. This Jesus who is always there to help me, wipe my tears, which are often, give me joy, relieve my frustrations, which are even more often, give clarity over confusion, and to give me peace. Is that your Jesus? This is my Jesus, whom I seek to serve and obey in every facet of life, of every day. I rarely achieve it for more than moments. But I know that when I fail, I can ask for forgiveness and he will grant it from his wellsprings of love, grace and mercy. It's this Jesus whom I depend upon and personally know to be totally reliable in every way. When people let me down, turn away from me, discourage me, think wrongly of me, incorrectly assume my motives, this Jesus always picks me up, never turns me away, always encourages and embraces me. I am his and he is mine. He comforts me. He challenges me. At the end of each day, I know that all through that day, Jesus has been dependable going ahead of me. Amazing that somebody could love me like that. Do you know him? And if we call ourselves Christian, a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, we know that we are being transformed into the image of Jesus and will continue to be until Jesus returns once more for us and for his body, the church. The church which I call his orchestra of joy. And sometimes this transformation takes comfort and sometimes it needs challenging. Remember our God challenges us in our comfort and comforts us in our challenges. Or is that just my experience? Do you know him? And lastly, if you're not yet a Christian and you want to turn to God now, there's no need for delay. He is ready and willing to take you as his own right now. You only have to ask him to forgive you, and he will. God is calling you by name to be his child and his follower. He is calling you by name to come back into relationship with him. As we've hopefully seen, being a Christian is a partnership between God and yourself. And when you place your faith in Jesus, becoming utterly dependent upon him, you have turned to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Help each of us as we go from here to become more dependent upon you and that those of us who know you personally will go tell somebody this week how that person can come into relationship with you. And we ask this Father through the the name of your Son, Jesus, who died for us and cleansed us, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
who lives within us, seals us as your children, and unites us as family. Amen.